Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's an author, motivational speaker, former MLB player. His life journey formed into the Disney movie, The Rookie. It's Jim Morris. How are you doing today, Jim? Fantastic, man. Awesome. That's awesome to hear. I'm excited to learn more about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do first is talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Ooh, military Brett. I grew up everywhere. Um, by the time I was 15, I moved to Texas to live with my grandparents. That, that high school became the 30th school I'd been to in nine years. Wow. Was it hard moving to all those different high schools where you could like be yourself and make friends? Or was it kind of just natural that you kind of knew that the next place could happen? Very few friends. My wife grew up in El Paso, stayed there. And so she knows everybody. And she's got friends from elementary school all the way through high school she still talks with. I don't have that because we didn't have social media back then. When you moved, it was all a corded phone. Mm -hmm. Some people may not even know how to use a corded phone now. And you just lose contact. And so everywhere I went, and my dad was very abusive physically and verbally. So I wanted to play sports. And I didn't talk because he told me I shouldn't talk ever. And so I didn't. And so I was shy. And the way that I came out was through sports. And so sports saved me as a kid. Was it hard with going with your dad, like to have that positive mindset because you couldn't be yourself at all? Or you were happy that baseball was that opportunity where I can say, okay, this is me now. In between the white lines, I got to be the kid I was supposed to be. And, you know, I look at it now and the guys are playing for a lot more than a hot dog and a Coke after the game. But as a kid, you go to the game and now probably it's Chick-fil-A. But back then when I was a kid, you get a hot dog and a Coke after the game, it's all good. And you talk about when you're going to see each other again. And, but now it's, it's just a different game. And growing up, playing baseball is how I made friends wherever I moved. I'd find a group of kids, show them I could throw. I'd have a team full of friends, never had to say anything. That's where I got to be the kid I was supposed to be. What's a memory that you remember as a kid playing baseball that sticks to your mind today? Okay, I quit one time in my life. And it was the first year I played. And I did great in the field, and I struck out almost every time except once. I hit a home run. And I quit with one game left. And my mom made me go to the awards ceremony. And the kid who took my place at first base got my all-star award. Wow. And I went, that will never happen again. And so I decided then quitting is not the way. Was there a specific moment of why you quit or were you just kind of getting tired at the time of that season? I was frustrated. Life is rough at home. And then you go out to a field where you strike out. You do great in the field playing first base and everything, making all the plays and then pitching once in a while back then. But not being able to hit the ball was very frustrating for me. And that first year was tough, but it was also that first year where the commander of the base in Key West had the biggest yard. And so he would come home every day and he would be the umpire for all the kids in the neighborhood. And that commander taught me how to hit. And he did it. He did it in such a way that I wanted to listen. My father would scream and yell and curse 
And this man was just telling me how it was. If you do this, they're just going to laugh. And if you act this way, you're not ever going to get on the field. And if you do this and if you do that, and then he started showing me how to do it. And that's when I fell in love with the game when I was seven. Would you say that commander was someone that was an inspiration or a motivation for you? Absolutely. Because when I look back at that, that man was commanding a whole base and all the ships that we had there. And yet he would come home and spend his afternoons with us kids that he didn't know. And we would just show up and he would divide teams and we would play. And then he got to know everybody and he would divide them up evenly. And, but he kept working with me. And that is one of the best memories I've got from growing up was that commander of that base who took the time to talk to me like a human being. Were your grandparents supportive of you playing baseball? Were they the ones encouraging you to get out there? By the time I got to Brownwood and lived with my grandparents, my grandparents could have cared less about sports. They wanted me to be a good human and a good man. And that's what they taught me at 15 when I could have gone off the rails because I had moved so many times. My grandparents just like, it's not happening on our watch. And so I went from being screamed at and yelled at and hit and blamed for everything that went wrong in our family to moving to my grandparents where I walk in and I have two rules. If you do it, own it, admit it, apologize for it and move on and don't do it again. And number two, if you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said because the truth is the truth. And it doesn't change and we still haven't learned that. But my grandparents instilled that in me and I didn't get yelled at, I didn't get screamed at, I didn't get hit. They talked to me like I was a human being and they made me want to be a better person because it wasn't just what they said and what they taught me, it was watching them and how they lived. They lived exactly like they talked. And if they said they were going to do something, they did it. And if they said they weren't going to do something, they weren't going to do it. I mean, just very honest, open people who went through World War II and the depression and everything else and grew up without anything and had to make something out of themselves, taking in a teenager when they should have been enjoying life, saved me, saved my life. Are the rules that they instilled in you some of the rules that you use today in your life? Absolutely, I've taught my kids, we've raised five kids, my wife and I, and they learned everything my grandparents said when I say something now, they're like, okay, Ernest, that's my grandfather's name, and even talking all over the world. I go to different places and my grandparents I spend time with because they taught me about faith and they taught me about honesty, character and integrity and keeping your word. That was so big with them and watching the way they did things. I'm working for my grandfather in his store and this man walks in one day and I recognize him, right? Because he's on TV. That's back when we had three channels and the kids were the remote controls. And so I saw this guy, he walks up to my grandfather, Ernest, and hugs him and starts smiling and laughing. They just start joking. I'm like, that is Gene Autry. And then it took me a long time because I just found out last year when I did a podcast with Dennis Quaid that he was related to Gene Autry. And so to come back around, the world is a small circle, man. And it was just amazing. My grandfather went to war with Gene Autry and they remained friends and he would come in from California and buy suits and hang out with my grandparents for a few days. It was awesome learning experience and it was a saving grace for me having those two in my life.
And it wasn't just them. It was my mom's parents, too. They just lived totally differently. They were country. And, you know, nowadays they'd probably go redneck. But they also instilled a lot in me. But it was my grandfather, Ernest and Alice, my grandmother, who taught me everything. My grandfather had me take my grandmother on lunch dates once a week so I would know how to treat women. Take their arm across the street. When you're on the sidewalk, keep them inside away from traffic, opening car doors, restaurant doors. He wanted to make sure that I knew how to be a good person. He could have cared less that I threw a ball harder than anybody else or that I could run almost faster than anybody else. That wasn't on his radar. That's not how he lived. He fought in the war. He went through the depression. He started a menswear store with a young wife and two small kids and a handshake from the banker, which never happens. And the banker looked at my grandfather and said, if it was anybody else, I would not give him this money, but I know you'll pay me back every penny. And it was a handshake and then the store and then everybody knew about it and everybody came in from all over the country. He served during World War II. So he knew everybody and everybody loved him because he is probably the most honest person I've ever seen. People would come into his store for his opinion. And when you want an opinion from my grandfather, Ernest, you get truth. And so they would go, what do you think about this? And he would go, I don't think that's for you, but I see this, this, and this. He was one of the first dream makers in my life. I did a speech about 10 years ago in Houston for a fundraiser. And I talked about my grandfather and his store, Ernest Morris Menswear in Brownwood, Texas. After the speech, this man walks up to me. And if you raise kids and you have a family, this is for the young people listening to your show. Something happens when you have kids. Men find out they can actually cry. And so this old man, who's probably 95, walks up to me. And before he gets to me, he's already crying, right? And so I've raised five kids, and everything's become emotional for me. I start crying before he talks to me. He hugs me, and then he pulls back, and he opens his lapel. And inside his jacket, it had Ernest Morris menswear from like 30 years before. And he goes, I went in to talk to Ernest about doing this certain thing. And I don't even remember what it was he said now. He goes, but Ernest looked at me and goes, you need to be in banking. He goes, when I retired, I sold all seven of my banks. And I owe your grandfather everything. He had a way of telling people truth that when you walked out of the store, you didn't hear what you wanted to, but he gave you three or four different options you could still hold your head up because you had hope. And nowadays people go, Oh, you can't do it. You're out. You suck and move on. Well, my grandparents showed me about grace back in a time when the church wasn't really about grace. And so they instilled a lot of good stuff in me. And it took a while to come out because you got to grow up as a kid. And when you're a boy, it's even worse. There are decisions you look back on and go, wow, I cannot even believe I did that. My grandparents would not have been proud about that but you just try to get better every time when you mess up, you're going to mess up. My grandfather always told me you're going to screw up. Don't worry about it. That means you're actually trying to accomplish something. So if you fail at something, you're one step closer to being where it is you want to be. And that, that is my grandfather, Ernest. And then they taught me a lot. Your grandparents sound like my grandparents, where they have the same mindset and all that, what they do with me, because I'm like one of their only grandkids. And I could do so many bad things, but they will see the positives in me and want to see me challenge myself to become even better. 
And yeah. I always get on the phone with them every week and I'm always talking to them because they give me the advice that like my whole family does. But it sounds like your, your grandfather was an inspiration to not just you, but to the whole town and was always yeah. willing to give advice and help the future and help people yeah. become the better version of themselves. Yeah, he was always giving back, as was my grandmother. She was our church secretary for 30 years. And I still remember back when they had mimeograph machines, and you're so young, you probably don't know what that is, and I know younger people don't. But it's a machine where you had this purple paper, and you type everything out, and then you run it through a machine. And she would do the church bulletin every week. And I would help her set that up. And at the end, I would get done. I would have purple and black hands because the heat just came everywhere. When you're a kid, you're like, that is cool. <laughs> but then it doesn't come off and you're like, wow, that was dirty. But I went from a house where everybody yelled and screamed and hit into my grandparents' house where I never heard a crossword. And they always built each other up. They always built everybody else up. And they looked for the positives instead of the negatives. And I think as a society, we need to do that. There are a lot of people out there who want to do that. But those are the people who are being silent right now. The people with the loud voices who are causing all the problems. Those are the ones who are taken over, and that's a very small percentage. There are, there are a lot of good people in this world, people like your grandparents and people like my grandparents who want us to do the right thing. And hopefully, we can live up to expectation and not down to. Yes, I, I agree. It's, it's the one thing with like social media that's kind of brought negativity in a lot of people, and yeah. I try to avoid all that. I, I only post positive messages, positive things that are going on because I don't need the drama and stuff like that. And no one should be saying hurtful things to each other. We should all be lifting each other up and trying to encourage each other to go for whatever we want and encourage people to find what's their next path that they want to take. I'll tell you this, with my grandparents, one of the lessons my grandfather taught me, this lady comes into the store one day, and this story's in the book, but I want to tell it to your audience real quick. She had on overalls and boots and a straw hat and the smell of the boots. She had a pig farm. It was obvious. And all the men around my grandfather's age who worked there as salesmen looked up from their coffee. They saw her and they're like, uh, and they didn't wait on her. They didn't acknowledge her. Nothing. My grandfather saw this and he walked up and treated her like she mattered. And she bought 15 suits for every male in her family and paid in cash. And then he came back by me, he goes, Jimmy, doesn't matter if you dig ditches or you're the president. Doesn't matter if you're black, purple, white, pink, it doesn't matter. If you cut us open, we all bleed red. We are the same color. And that's how we need to treat people. Treat everybody like you want your grandmother treated. Just powerful, powerful lessons that are needed so much today because everybody feeds on negative. And we gotta get away from that. We gotta start looking at the good things. We're alive. We're breathing. We've got a life. We've got dreams. We're in America. We can go chase them. Let's go do it. I totally agree with that. Growing up, did you? what was your dream job that you wanted? I think growing up, I wanted to be in the military. And there was only one problem. I had life-threatening asthma. And so bad that at 15, they put me in the hospital for five days where sometime in the middle of the night, my IV came undone and I almost bled out. And there was blood all over the bed, all over the floor. And I thought I was dreaming that I was drowning in water. And when I woke up, it was all blood. So the military was out for me because of 
the asthma and the feet, but baseball has been with me for a long time. And I knew I wanted to be an athlete and I didn't care if it was football, basketball, baseball, whatever it was, that's what I wanted to play. And sports gave me an identity when I didn't have one. My grandparents built the foundation, but sports gave me the discipline. So after high school, did you pursue baseball or any kind of sport with at college or did you just go to college just to pursue the education? During my junior and senior year, I went through something and that made me want to stay close to home when I went to school. And my grades were bad. I'd always been told how stupid I was, so I didn't study. If you're stupid, why study? You're not going to learn anything. I made just good enough grades to get on the field, and that's all I cared about. But during my junior year, my grandfather stumbled in the store one day. And he got up and he played it off, act like it didn't happen. But over the next 18 months, he went from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair. Eventually, back in that day, being diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, probably from a chemical he was exposed to during World War II. And it started taking his life quickly. And I watched this strong six foot three, 260 pound man who carried a community on his shoulders lead from a wheelchair when he was barely able to talk. And he lived his life for the betterment of people. And I wish we could do that. It was never about him. And the last time he was alive and he went to church, I carried him in and he couldn't hardly move his arms, but he would wave and he would try to smile at people because he was still Ernest Morris. And we're going to live up to expectation. He never complained. I thought at 18, I was mad for him. And I thought, man, God sucks. This is brutal. This guy's done nothing but help people his entire life. How could this happen? And then as you get older, you find out what your grandparents taught you was true. God didn't do it. It was just something I was exposed to and that's how it happened and that's what happened. So I wanted to stay close to home as I got ready to graduate. Luckily, a guy from a junior college saw me one night when I struck out 17 and hit three home runs and he offered me a scholarship at junior college. 45 minutes away, he goes, you play for me during the week. I'll get you classes that you can pass, which was helpful. On the weekends, you go home and spend time with your grandparents in the hospital. And so I was drafted by the Yankees in the 19th round as I exited high school, even having no high school baseball team. I didn't go because I wanted to stay close to home. And so during those next four months, my grandfather got sicker and sicker. I went to Ranger. I went to class. I played baseball. I would go home, spend time with them. He passed away in November after I graduated high school. And then I got drafted by the Brewers and two months later and thought, that's my ticket. I'm out because my father had retired. He was back home. I didn't want to be around that. Ernest wasn't around to help corral things that needed to be unsaid. And so it was time for me to go. And so they offered me 35 grand and I took it and I thought, I am rich. And for nine months I was, and, you know, and you look back at things and you laugh and you see, I'm a person of faith. I don't push it on anybody. But God shows up at the strangest times and has this sense of humor that is just collective in your soul. And so before my grandfather's voice was taken away from me, he and I at the kitchen table one night, and just like I said, I threw back at him what an 18-year-old would throw back at a grandfather. 
this is not fair. Why did God do this to you? You've always helped people. And now you've been stricken with this horrible disease. This is not fair. And he looked at me and he goes, been working my whole life to get to where I'm going. Where are you headed? And at that moment, I got what he was talking about. And then at 19, I, my father, who could have said a lot, I love you, be careful, good luck. I hope you make it. Oh my God, you don't suck. All he had to offer was do not take that money and go buy a little red sports car. And so that's what I did. <laughs> and, and at 19, I drove from Brownwood to Phoenix for my first spring training after my grandfather had died. And as I'm driving through Big Lake, Texas, where the movie takes place, I look around in my little red sports car at 19 and thought, who would live here? And God was going, <laughs> you're going to. You just don't know it yet. And eventually that's where I ended up. And just a sense of humor where he lets you know he's there. And there are times when we say things that shouldn't be said. And there are times we do things we shouldn't do. But that's what makes us human. We're going to screw up. We're going to mess up. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be hard. But we can do this. My grandfather showed me that from a wheelchair. Your grandfather knew exactly what to tell you at any moment where yeah. if you were thinking a certain way or your mind was focused on something that maybe he didn't feel like you should be focused on. He knew like that one line that got you to the path and that mindset to go and live out what you wanted to do. And it turned around where you got to go play baseball and yeah. be able to live out your dream. When you were going to spring training or that first round of being in the majors, what did you learn about yourself at, during that time? Well, the first time was six years in the minors, five, no, five and a half years, six surgeries. And at 24, I'm Dr. James Andrews' office in Birmingham, and Dr. Andrews looks at me and goes, I can fix it and put you back on the field, but this decision is yours. And at 24, Five and a half years later, I'm like, this sucks. I'm rehabbing all the time. I'm getting well from surgeries. I need to go do something else. I looked at him and I go, it's time for me to grow up. I said, I need to go home. I need to go to college. I need to get a degree. Maybe I can find a group of kids, teach them the opposite of the way I did everything, and they'll be pretty good. I said, I'll meet somebody, get married, start a family, buy a house, get a dog, grow up. That's my plan. He goes, Jimmy, that is a great plan. Start with a dog. And <laughs> That was just Doc Andrews. And I went home, I went to college for my first class I took during the summer was anatomy and physiology, which I later found out nobody does that to themselves during the summer. And A's and the professor trying to talk me into going to medical school and I go, but I'm dumb. He goes, there are 20 people in this classroom. There are 19 nurses and there is you. And everybody wants to be your lab partner. What does that tell you? I said, tells me I look good. And he goes, he goes, no, you don't. He goes, but you're smart. He goes, this test I wrote out specifically to see who could do it. You not only aced it, but your answers were better than questions that I wrote. Wow. He goes, you need to go to medical school. There is nothing keeping you from going as far as you want. And because of him, I found out I wasn't dumb. So it was kind of like another, kind of like your grandfather telling you that you can do it and being able to yeah. give that positive message 
going back with the all the surgeries you had, what was the cause of you having to go through all the surgeries? Was it the wear and tear of pitching that was going on? I think growing up back then, we didn't have limits on pitches or innings. And so if you were good, they'd throw you out there. And any kid who gets asked if he wants to pitch, it's not going to go, no, I don't really feel like it today. You're like, yeah, I'll take the ball. Let's go. And even if your arm's hanging down to your ankle, you're like, I can pitch. And I think I threw the wrong way too long. And I was hurt. High school football, I had a lot of injuries. And so it could have been anything along the way. The first one I had was Tommy John surgery. I'd torn my ACL. 85% of it was torn. And Dr. Job did that surgery. And he goes, you're not pitching this year. And that was probably the toughest one because I thought I was invincible. When you're young and you have money, you're like, I can do whatever I want for as long as I want. It will never stop. But one of the things my grandfather taught me was, what are you going to do when you can't throw the ball hard anymore? And as a teenager and a young 20s person, that's not a thought that ever crossed my mind. I thought I can do whatever I want as long as I want because I am me. And then you find out you're human and that's not how the world works. And you go to spring training and find out they're there for a reason. These people are good. These aren't people you played in the evening with during summer league and they hauled hay all day. Then they came out and you struck them out and felt good about yourself. These people have been to college. They've played minor league ball. They're pretty good at what they do and everybody's the same. I'd never experienced that from a small town. And I always stood out and then you go and you're just one of the little fishes. And I never really figured that out. I was my own detriment during that first stint in baseball. Doctor would say, take off 10 months. I would take off five weeks and I would try to start throwing. It was just, I know better than anybody else. And I didn't. And I made a lot of mistakes. And if it was not for the dream makers and the mentors in my life, I don't know where I'd be right now. But because of my grandparents, because of that professor in college and a few other people, I got to do some incredible things all at the behest of a group of high school kids. And so when you think you can dream, you're not too old. You're not too young to dream. You can dream. And then you put that dream into action. You see what happens. The least that'll happen is you're not going to wake up one day and go, what if I would have tried one more time? That was one of my grandfather's big things. If you do it, he goes, I'm not talking about, playing ball. I'm talking about digging a ditch. I'm talking about running for Congress. I'm talking about doing whatever it is you want to do. What happens when you can't do it? Are you going to change? Are you going to keep trying? Are you going to make a new plan? He was always teaching me to think ahead. And in the early twenties, I didn't, it was all about me. And I didn't learn there were other people in the world until too late. And then you're back in college. And now you're going to go teach kids how to play the game, how it should be played and not how I did it. And so it's a long answer. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're good. You're good. I just want, I want people to understand, you know what? It doesn't matter what we've achieved in our life. Our achievements come because we tried and we didn't give up and we persevered and we were persistent in going about it. And I'm telling you this because as a 35-year-old coach and teacher, 
a group of 16 and 17 year old kids taught me how to dream. When I pushed them, they pushed back. So I'm tired of hearing people go, oh, this age of people doesn't know anything. And that age of people, you're too old. You can't do it. You're too young. You don't know enough. You don't know until you know. Go out and try it and see what happens. The one thing I love about doing this show is the, the advice or the inspiration messages that my guests give. And even if it's a long answer, it's still, I learned so much from them just sharing with me. And a lot of people are probably going through similar situations and maybe they just needed to hear maybe what they need to do next or something that can get them going on that next track and see what they're able to do. So I love that when people share, so it doesn't bother me. After your professor told you about going to medical school or maybe pursuing that, what, were, what did you do next or what was that next decision for you? I married my future ex-wife and she got pregnant and I didn't go to medical school and I ended up playing college football at 27 and 28 where I led the country in punting and still wanted to be an athlete, still wanted to be on the field, couldn't play baseball anymore. So I'll play football. Let's see how that goes. All-American. Great time. Every team came through in the NFL looking at me going, we want you, we want you. And I never, they didn't draft me. And I thought, what happened? I don't get it. And it took me until the movie came out and I was doing a speech in Corpus Christi. And it was for the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And Nolan Ryan's son was there, Reed, to introduce the new team that was coming to Corpus Christi. So I was there, he was there, and there was one other white guy there, and I'm not being racist, I'm just telling you, it was a Hispanic function, but this other guy showed up. And so I do my speech, Reed talks about bringing the team in, everybody gets their autographs, hugs me, takes pictures, leaves, this white guy in the back of the room comes up to me and he looks at me and he goes, I have a question to ask you. I'm like, sure, he goes, do you remember me? And I go, sir, I've met a lot of people in the last five years. I said, I would love to tell you I remember all kinds of names, but all my kids, even in high school, were sir and ma'am because names just gets jumbled with me. He goes, I was your football agent when you were in college. And I go, wow, this guy lost like almost 200 pounds. And I go, you look absolutely fantastic. He goes, yeah, but I came here. But when I found out you were coming to talk, I got out your old game films that all the NFL teams had. And I came here to ask you a question. I go, ask me anything. He goes, back in 1992, when the Steelers were going to draft you in the second round to punt and kick, why did you not call back? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, they called your wife. They gave her the message. You had 20 minutes to call back to tell me you're interested. She said she would find you. You're out the field kicking. What happened? Wow. Sabotage. And for 30 seconds, I was the most mad person on the planet because when I didn't get drafted, it put me into a depression where I thought everybody came through, everybody liked me. How could this not happen? I know I'm old, but I punt. Who's going to care about how old I am if I can have five, three hang time? Who cares? And then I didn't get drafted. So I went through a rough time and then to find out, yeah, you would have got drafted in the second round as a punter from a division two school. Okay. I call my wife, Shauna, that I'm married to now been married to for 18 years, raised five kids with her. And I said, I am mad. And I told her what happened. And she said, 
if you would have got that phone call, you wouldn't be where you are right now. And I thought about it and went, wow, I wouldn't be married to someone I absolutely adore. I wouldn't have raised five kids. I wouldn't have got to play baseball. I wouldn't have had Dennis Quaid play me. I wouldn't have had Disney make a movie about it. None of this would have happened if I would have played football. And so I think God shows up when bad things happen. God shows up and gives you an opportunity to do something else. And unbeknownst to me, even after a surgery in which the doctor said, you'll never ever pitch again physically impossible. 11 years later, I come back with the group of kids throwing 98 to 102 and never even knew it until I went to the tryout. So when the doctor said, you will never, ever pitch again, that was when I threw 87 or 88. Once in a while, I would hit 90. And then 85% of the muscle out of my shoulder, and now you come back throwing 98 to 102. And I know everybody doesn't have faith, but that doesn't happen. Even medical people are like, that is impossible. But it happened. And that group of kids talked their coach into going back out and playing ball. And that group of kids could hit 98 mile an hour fastballs. And I never even knew I was throwing that hard, but they did. Just when you have dream makers around you, people that want to make you better because it makes them feel better. And you surround yourself with those people who are building you up and not tearing you down. That's when you have a good team. When you were working was the goal then to go and work in education, like was that where your path was taking you? Yeah, because I wanted to work with kids. I knew that even during rehab years, I would work for the state at one of their state schools for kids. And that was a lot of fun. It was close to my heart. And I want to see there are a lot of kids who we have no idea what they go through every day just to get out of the house. And so I wanted to be a part of making that picture a little bit better if I could. So I wanted to work with kids. The baseball team that you worked with, um, do you kind of still have that connection with them as they are getting older and you're growing as an individual also? Absolutely. I started a foundation a few years ago where we go to inner city schools and help redo programs that don't have anything. Like the school being a district where 10 miles down the road, the school that's in their conference has a nine uniforms and 75 bats and a turf field that cost a million dollars to put in. And these kids don't even have nine uniforms to put together that look the same. And so those kids at my high school were a part of this function and we helped give them weight rooms and uniforms and redid their field and gave them a scoreboard and did everything else. And then, you know what, they started winning. And this year before COVID hit, I think they were 10 and 0 before no more games. Wow. And so we build people up to lift them up to expectation. We don't want to talk down to anybody. And that's how I talk to audiences. I'm just a guy who has some stories I want to share with you and maybe they resonate with you and maybe you can learn from them. Maybe not make the same mistakes I did, but laugh while you're doing it because I'm not making fun of you. I'm making fun of me. So yeah, those kids are still a part of my life. And I got one who's still in the Coast Guard and he's in Corpus now and we're going to get together and have dinner. 
but it's just amazing to see these kids grow up. And now they're older than I was when I went back and tried out. So their kids are getting married. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm old. <laughs> but it's cool to watch that process. Those kids that you helped with building that field and everything, it's you made a huge impact for them. They finally had that like moment where I can play. I can live out their dream of playing baseball. And it's unfortunate that the pandemic happened where they're not able to play right now. When you were going back into the major leagues for the second round, um, did you kind of felt that it was a second chance in a way? Like I didn't get that first opportunity because I was going through the injuries, but now I'm like, I can do this again and maybe play a little bit longer than I thought I would. I'll tell you, because I'm a person of faith, there was a lot of prayer that went on. And I asked for God's advice in a lot of different areas. And one of the things that happened to me the night that the kids won the district championship in high school, and I watched these kids celebrate something that not even they thought they could do. Everything my grandparents taught me finally hit me. And I think that's when God went there. Now you're ready. Because I looked at this group of kids celebrating. And I realized that my grandparents were teaching me that life is not about me. It's about helping other people. And when we take the focus off of me, we become we, we become a team and we become stronger and we become part of something bigger. And it took me until I was 35 years old and had three kids already to realize that. Go to tryout. When I did everything and it was all about me, it never worked. When I did it for everybody but me, that's when the second chance came. And that's when the majors came. And that's when throwing 98 to 102 proved a lot of doctors wrong. And it was awesome to be a part of that. It went very quickly. I had a lot of fun. I met a lot of people and a lot of fantastic people. But you know, our society feeds on negativity. So we're going to find the ugly. And we're not going to talk about the pretty and talk about the guys who go out and they help other people with inner city schools. And they do things that nobody knows about and they don't want them to know about because it just makes them feel better to help and they give back. And so just getting the opportunity to take a major league field with a group of guys who are the best in the world at something, that is a feeling that is unmatchable. And you have this dream when you're a kid and you go, if I could just do that, that would be so cool. And then you get there and you do it and it's better than you even dreamed of. And now you're playing the game you love. You're playing against the best. You're getting paid for it. You're getting to go to all these places. You're getting to eat at these restaurants and stay in these nice hotels. You're getting treated so unlike I was treated for the first 15 years of my life. And so I didn't want to let anything brush by me. First the field, last to leave. Wanted to learn everything I could. I went from being a coach and coaching a group of kids to being coached and being a chess piece that the manager put in when he wanted in. And so it was a cool process. And even though I was older, it didn't matter. The guys knew I could do what I was there to do because I could throw hard. The teammates on your team, did they kind of felt like, wow, I can't believe your story that you went from <laughs> coaching a team to now you're living that dream again. 
being in the major leagues? Did it kind of, or was it like the opposite where they kind of were like, what are you doing here in a way? There was a few of those, but mostly it was incredibly positive. When I walk in, the first person to come up to me had just gotten his 3000th hit like the week or two before is Wade Boggs. Wow. And he hugs me and goes, man, that is the best story I've ever heard in my life. And to me, I'm still a coach and a fan, right? And I'm looking at Wade Boggs, who is an instant Hall of Famer. And I'm like, you're Wade Boggs. You like chicken. And he, he, he laughs at me and he hugs me. He walks off. Roberto Hernandez, Fred McGriff, Jose Canseco. And people have said a lot of negative stuff about him. There's some decisions he, he made he probably shouldn't have. But he treated me like gold also. And so it was just so much fun to be around the locker room again and joking and laughing with guys who are every color from every part of the world, but we're all getting along because we're a team. And you know what? You want society to work, go into a locker room somewhere and watch guys or girls who have to sweat and work and play and, and perform at the very best of their ability. And yet they're still part of a team. Those teams show us how it should be done, and we haven't got the gist of that in Washington. So that's all I'm talking about politically because neither side gets along. I don't care right now about anything because they suck. And that's just we don't know the truth, and we're not going to know the truth, and it's never going to be told. That's it. Whatever side you're on. <laughs> Looking back from your team when – coaching a team to district championships to you getting that in the majors and being with the Tampa Bay Double A's, what was more rewarding, would you say? I think their most rewarding part was the very first game. My kids and I made the bet. Three months later, I go to a tryout. Three months after that, I'm in the big leagues. I'm in Texas. I'm in my home state at my favorite ballpark where I'd set and the left field stands two years before because I was going to a softball tournament, looking down at that field going, man, it would be so cool to play there, and now I'm on that field. And everybody I know and love is at that game. And Johnny Oates, the opposing manager for the Texas Rangers that day, led over 150 people in the game that day that had ties to me because my high school kids showed up. I got to see my kids for the first time in three months. My family showed up. Kids that I coached against, coaches had gotten school buses and driven nine hours wow. to come to that game. He let them in too. And so that memory is probably the best one. Having not only my kids, but my high school kids and kids I coached against, watching someone who made a promise, getting to live it out. And I think that is one of the biggest lessons in perseverance. And I think that is my best memory because I'm there because of a group of kids. But now I am a, one of the elite. And so it was all cool because they were part of what got me there. So after playing in the majors, what was next for you? What was that next path that you were going to take? We wrote a book and we did a Disney movie. And my third day in the big leagues, Bill Plaschke for the LA Times writes this Sunday article on the front page of the sports page. And the Sunday edition, it covers the whole page. He interviewed my kids, my high school kids, people I taught with and coached with. So after Texas, we went to Anaheim to play the Angels. 
And after that article, my third day in the big leagues, they had to change my name in the hotel because everybody was calling about movie deals and book deals and articles and documentaries. And that needed to stop. So over those four days of being there, I went to different studios and had lunch with a lot of heavy hitters and listened to their versions of what they wanted to put on screen. And I thought, that is not anything I want a part of. That's not what this is about. And so when my agent Steve and I are walking across the grounds of Disney in Burbank, he looks up at me and he goes, what is it you want? And I said, I want a movie about kids who everybody counts out and they overcome the odds. I said, I also want a movie about people my age who get a second chance and are actually brave enough to go out and try it. I said, that's what I want. And so we walk up and Eisner is ahead of Disney at the time. And he goes, this is what I have in mind. I want a movie about kids who I'm like, they have microphones in the parking lot. They know everything. And I said pretty much exactly what I had said walking across the grounds and I was so done. And then I started telling me about everybody who wanted to play me. And that was cool. <clears throat> Then I met the kids who were going to play, who were going to play the kids I coached. But the day that Dennis Quaid signed on to play me, I met him at his house in Brentwood and he and I played catch in his front yard. And I thought, this is a long way from a high school classroom in the middle of West Texas, nowhere. And now I'm in LA playing catch with a guy who's made over 50 movies. And now he's playing me. It was all overwhelming and surreal and it was like fast speed and slow motion and it was just a weird time it was like the twilight zone i'm like <laughs> i was teaching two years ago and now this dude's playing me in the movie how is that possible and you know but I always had people to bring me back to life i called my mom after i got back in my truck from playing catch with dennis and i said guess where i am and i told her and she goes you suck <laughs> i'm like <laughs> She loves Dennis Quaid. And the whole process was just fun. You know, the kids, my high school kids who could have gone nuts and gone, wow, that's amazing. This is cool. I give up a home run on to a guy who hit under 200. And they were like, did they serve meals on that flight? I mean, even my high school kids were keeping me grounded. They were happy for me, but they wanted me to be focused. And so I had the right people around me to do the things that got me to be where I was. So when you surround yourself with really good people, you have a really good chance of achieving your dreams. In the movie, you, you have the part with your, the person that plays your dad and then that story. Was it kind of hard to kind of have that written into the movie? where it would bring up memories as you were younger, or this was a way to tell your story and the, the evolution of the character that played you in the movie? It was tough, but it was way worse than that. Because it was a Disney movie. We, we showed a gruffness there, but not the extent to which things went on. And so I appreciated that. And I'll tell you this, and it's funny because I felt like a moron. Brian Cox, who played my dad, finishes up his last scene for the movie, getting the baseball from Dennis, like after, you know, after the game when I played. And everybody gives him a standing ovation. I'm like, who is that guy? And they're like, that is Brian Cox. I'm like, 
And, and then I go home. He's like in every single movie I turn on. And he's in you know, Bourne movies. I'm like, oh, he's in a lot of movies. And so it was cool getting to meet people. It was rough going through things that were rough to go through as a kid. But there was enough going on to distract me to get through what we needed to get through. And so that filming was just a part of it. One of the things I was disappointed in at first was the fact that they left a lot of stuff about my grandfather out. And I thought, wow, that was the person who turned me around. But it has given me the ability to use the movie during my talks to talk about exactly what he did for me as I grew up. And so now I can create my own narrative and not have a movie studio go, this is how he was and that's how he's going to be until your movie quits running. I get to build Ernest up in the way I want to. And because he and Alice meant so much to me, I get to create a beautiful story. Yeah, because I don't, I from rem remembering the movie, I actually own the movie. I don't remember much about your grandfather being in it because it's kind of focused on what like what you're growing up and then you as the high school teacher and then playing in the majors. So it's kind of nice that you can be able to talk and share with people how big of an impact your grandfather had. And we learn even yeah. more about your story and your rise to the challenge. Was it hard? Did you have much involvement in the writing of the movie or you kind of gave them the overall outline of it, and then they worked in the story. Man, I went from being a teacher with no lawyers to signing a Disney contract and having like a hundred lawyers. Oh yeah. It was unbelievable. But during that whole process, I met the writer, Mike Rich. We talked, he created his narrative. He went and did his thing and then created more of the movie. John Lee Hancock, who was the director, was probably one of the smartest people I've ever known and could bring history to life. Like the nuns at the beginning of the movie and everybody goes, what is the deal with the nuns? That happened. And so I think when you can bring history up and not tear history down, that's what our people need right now. We don't need to forget our history because that's part of what made us who we are even if it's ugly. What was the overall reception of the movie after it was released? Did you get a lot of positive feedback from it? At first, Disney was petrified that a G rating would kill the movie and parents wouldn't show up. They would just have their kids go to the movie. And so they sent Dennis and I on the Disney jet, which by the way, does not suck. <laughs> all around the country to go to Seattle and LA and San Francisco and Boston, New York, all these different places we went to. And Dennis and I would show up. And this is where I learned that I'm glad I'm a dude because makeup sucks. Every morning we get up, they would put makeup on us at 4.45. We'd have a little breakfast. We'd go to TV stations and do all the morning shows. And then that afternoon, we would introduce the movie and talk about it for a minute. And then a group of people from that city would watch the movie. And the reception was unbelievable. And the parents loved it. And there have been a lot of stories through the years that people have come back with me and gone, you know what? I watched my son and my husband walk into the movie theater, not even close to each other and walk out holding hands. 
And I think stuff like that is cool. And wasn't planned, wasn't contrived, was never my thought, hey, I'm going to go try out and I'm going to make the big league and that's going to happen. This stuff happened. I mean, I went through it and there's still things I can't believe happened. It happened in such a way just to keep the dream rolling. And so when we found out that everybody loved it, it, it was cool. I mean, during the process of filming, Disney people would come up to us and go, who are your favorite ball players of all time? And they're asking Dennis and I, and so we're naming people and he's a little bit older than me. So he's naming different people from his era and I'm naming people in my era. And then we forget about it. And then the night before the world premiere, we're in New York city and we're watching a movie with 21 hall of famers. Wow. And they brought all these people in and then we eat dinner at the 21 club. I mean, they know how to treat people, man. Disney is on top of it. And so we're sitting there with 21 Hall of Famers having dinner after they've seen the movie. And people like Ozzy Smith are going, if you don't cry during this, you don't have a heart. And you're just like, wow. This is baseball history right here. And just so many people. And incredible night. Dennis and I had a blast. I mean, had Willie Mays asked me for my autograph. Wow. Dude, I played less than two years in the big leagues and Willie Mays asked me for my autograph. <laughs> that is awesome. And so it was a great time and Disney knows how to treat people, but I was very happy with the movie. It did way better than they thought it would. And I think it's because we needed it at that time. 9-11 had happened six months before, kind of showed us that we were not immortal and things could happen. And then we have a family movie come out and it's about sports and it's about family. And it's about second chances. And it took off. That, yeah, the movie was something like going with my dad and as he's not doing well, it kind of brought, it was a movie that we bonded over. We always talked about watching it and it kind of brought the families together to watch it. And it's just amazing to hear how, like you said, you went from living in a small town, working as a high school teacher, playing in the majors for a short period of time, to being able to tell your story. And now you were being able to eat with a bunch of Hall of Famers that loved your story. I mean, that it's just, yeah. it's crazy what our past can take us in the direction it goes. And like you said, you weren't used to that lifestyle in a way. After that movie was done, was there more opportunities given to you? Like, was there more opportunities to do more like community service stuff, philanthropy, or were you ready for that next career path? Yeah, I was ready for the next career path, but there's a reason I walked away from baseball in 2001. I went from playing with all the guys out in LA at Chavez Ravine during pre-spring training and getting in shape, lifting weights, throwing, taking ground balls, doing all this stuff that is tedious that you want to get used to before you have to do it over and over and over and over again during spring training. Five days later, I drive from LA to, to Florida and the first day out I'm playing catch with another pitcher and I can't judge the ball. In five days, I can't play catch because I don't know if it's going to hit me in the mouth. And then I can't bunt and we're doing bunting drills and I can't, I teach this. How can I not show people how to lay the bat on the ball? And 
I got scared and I thought if I throw a ball up there at a hundred and somebody hits it back at me at 120, I could be done. And so I went into Jim Tracy's office, even though my agent was telling me not to do it. I said, I got to quit. I said, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm never going to light the world on fire. My, my son called me last night and said, when are you coming home? I said, it's time to go watch my kids chase their dreams. And so I went home, met my future wife, get married, her two kids, my three, we raised them together. But during those next 20 years, even though I'm speaking continually, I'm having surgeries continually and I don't know what's wrong with my body and people are going, this is wrong and that's wrong. Eventually I get diagnosed with Parkinson's and I get really sick and they give me medicine and it helps me think better and move better, but it tears up my insides. And so I have gastric bypass and I have a deep brain stimulator put in and the Parkinson's get worse. And my neurologist is going, it's just Parkinson's, honey. It's just going to get worse. I'm sorry. To the point where my mom bought me a cane to walk with around the block. And then my group of prayer warriors from church, my girls, keep praying for me constantly through every surgery. So 20 years, 58 surgeries including brain surgery twice and three years after my mom bought me the cane and my lady started praying for me I don't have Parkinson's they took my deep brain stimulator out in June and I'm running and I'm lifting weights and I don't have any symptoms and I can smell and I can taste and I can do everything that when you're in the middle of Parkinson's you can't do and my neurologist goes that is not possible and I said with faith, everything is possible. I was never supposed to pitch again. I came back throwing harder. I was supposed to get sicker. You were condemning me. I was done. And when you're in the middle of this process, you start to drown. And I hope this helps some of your listeners. They give you pills for every surgery. And you're either getting ready for surgery, you're having surgery, you're getting over surgery. So you're on pain pills for 20 years. And even though you're doing that, you're still in pain. And you're like, well, I will add my own medication. I will start drinking. And then you end up drinking vodka. And then you wake up two days after Christmas in 2016 and you're in rehab. And you're like, what happened? And that stint in rehab helped me realize I'm in charge of my life. And I can make it good or I can make it bad. And right now I'm making it bad and I'm making it worse. It took me those 30 days to listen to several counselors, including one who I called Dr. B, go, painkillers do two things. They cause more pain than they kill you. So I was done with pain pills. And then the alcohol stuff, and all my ladies are praying for me through all of this. I don't detox. I don't get sick. Everybody else is throwing up. It's coming out of both sides. They can't stop it. They're walking down a hallway. It just happens. I don't have any of that. And I get through and I walk into my counselor's office one day and he was the pastor for the center and he loves baseball. He's been to every major league field and has mementos from every field. And that's awesome. And I come in, he sits me down. He goes, I let you get used to being here and I want to talk to you. And I said, okay. He goes, I love the story, love the movie. Dennis did a great job. Why are you here? 
And I said, I lost my way. I gave up. I listened to the people telling me I can't do it. And I just quit. And I wasn't trying to die, but I wasn't trying to live either. And he looked at me, he goes, where has Jesus been the whole time? I said, man, he's my co-pilot. I know he's there. I'm just sick. And this is just happening. He goes, let me ask you, if Jesus is with you, why is he your co-pilot? Why don't you let him take charge? And it just like flicked, flipped a switch. And I was like, it's just not mine to bear. And it's not my family's to bear. Why not give it up, pray about it and let it go and do the best I can with what I have. Went home, got better and better and better. My neurosurgeon looks at me, he goes, you look better than me and you suck. He goes, but you're not sick anymore. And they did a brain scan and the scan that five years before showed that I had no dopamine in the right side of my brain was normal. And so no levels were disturbed. You don't have Parkinson's. This doesn't happen. And nobody would talk to me. They're like, voodoo. You're like, you got well from something. Nobody gets well from. I'm like, nothing is impossible. And I keep getting shown this and I keep being the example for this. But going to rehab and getting better and giving up everything and not even caring about it because I want to live. And now I'm in shape and now I can do stuff. And I don't have anything fog in my brain. And I don't have Parkinson's making me fall over. When I had the deep brain stimulator taken out in June, I kind of panicked the night before I had it done. It had been off for two years, but I still had it, right? And so if I need a backup, I just have to turn it back on. And if they take that out, I have no backup. And then I did it and I went in at six at 1030. I walked out from brain surgery and my deep brain stimulator was gone and COVID year. My wife couldn't go in. So she's waiting in the parking lot with one of my, my prayer girls. And I got to tell you this, my prayer girls are from 50 to 90, but they want to be called girls, not women, not ladies, not prayer warriors. They want to be called my girls. And so that's what I call them. And one of them, the girls who is my wife's spiritual mom sat with her the whole time in the car. They had coffee and everything. Well, I had surgery. I came out and it was the most amazing feeling because I'm like, I am not sick anymore. I just had my backup plan taken out and I'm walking fine to my car and I'm not leaning or falling one way or the other. I'm not falling backwards. I can smell, I can taste, I can move, I can button my shirt. I'm well. So the power of prayer is very strong with me. Do you feel like now you're able to do like the normal things that you're able to do like you did before where you're able to move around, think, and you're happy that you're able to be free in doing that? Yeah, because before, for 20 years, I'm having surgery and I'm going through Parkinson's, but I'm still making all my speeches. And then you get well and you're doing speeches and you're not taking the elevator anymore up to where you're talking. You're walking the stairs where before your legs would tremble so badly, there's no way you're going to do that because you don't know if you're going to fall. And so now to have that clear mind to go, I can go and do whatever it is I want to do. It's pretty cool. I don't have a battery sitting here. So every time I walk to the airport, security wants to check me like I have a bomb in my chest, like I want to blow myself up. 
come on, dude, it's a battery. It goes to my brain. And I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's gone. And so 2020 has sucked for a lot of people. And I'm not going to tell you, I've gotten bored doing the same thing over and over and over again. But now I've learned to do virtual talks and I've learned to do podcasts and I learned how to do podcasts. And I've learned that I don't have to go on a plane to go somewhere to speak to a group of people. I can do it from right here. And so we learn, we evolve and we move on and everybody's going, I can't wait till it gets back to normal. Don't count on that. We don't know what the new normal is going to look like. Yeah. And we just got to be the best we can be. And so I've had those lessons every step of my life. And I had good people who have steered me in the right direction when I've gotten off track every single time. And it's been an amazing journey. I know the destination. It's the journey that makes it worth living. 2020 has definitely been, for me, a time of self-reflection in a way. As earlier this year, I went through the whole furlough process with my company. And I had that moment of, I don't know what's next. Like, what am I supposed to do? And this opportunity making the podcast happened because I love talking to people and I always had the dream of doing it. And I knew now is the time to make it happen. And every interview I have, I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've been given to speak to so many wonderful people, just like yourself and being able to speak with people all across the world. And usually you have to travel and get on a plane to do that. But now I can do it from the comfort of my home. And I'm excited to see what's next. And even for you, you're all, you just, I think you just came out with a book called Dream Makers. Talk about yes. the process of making that book. This is a book that took us 20 years to write. We started it numerous times. We took it to the book publicist numerous times. And every time she said no. And then praying for an ending because everything was good, but we didn't have a, a punch to the gut that made people think. Having rehab come up and talking about that was hard, but cathartic. And I know other people are going through things and I know that people have really picked up on drinking alcohol during 2020. And you know what? You're not gonna hide from the problems we have with alcohol. And if you got pain pills, that's not gonna work. And if you smoke dope, that's not gonna work. You still gotta face what you gotta face. And rehab taught me that and that gave me a great chapter. But then the faith chapter happened too. And I asked God for one ending and I got two. And so the faith part of it and how things happened was even crazier than baseball. And so we got two endings and I want to tell you the ending, but I don't want to tell you the ending, but there's so much stuff in there. I think everybody needs to read it. And if you don't have faith, I don't care. I'm not trying to convert you into anything. I'm just telling you what makes me tick. My faith is my faith and you do what you do. And, but we got to be the best we can be no matter what faith or no faith decides. We still got to be human and we still got to interact and it's not my job to judge. It's my job to love. And all right, I'll tell you, I had had my, my battery. I was turning it down slowly 
right? Because I thought, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. So I turned it down. I had it on like 4.5, which is really high because I was shaking. My wife turned it off accidentally one day and I fell over, literally. Oh, no. And, but now I'm getting better and I'm walking more and I'm lifting again. I start turning it down. And so one day, Shauna didn't feel good and she laid down to take a nap. And I'm, I'm out in my weight room and I've got the garage doors open. My dog, Max, is out there with me. And I'm lifting weights and I'll sit and I'm listening to Christian music and and I just hear these voices start and they're going, you're well, you're well. And I thought my friends were messing with me, right? And so I get up out of my chair and I look around the garage and I go around the whole house and Max is looking around, his hair raises up. He's like, what's going on? You're healed. And it came down to one voice that is the most incredible voice I've ever heard. And it said, you were healed. Turn it off. And I walked into the house and I was going down by 0.2 every week just to see how I'd feel and how the symptoms were affecting me. And nothing, nothing, nothing. And now I'm on 0.8, right? So this should be like four more weeks of 0.2, 0.2, 0.2. I turned it off. And for the first time in probably 10 years, I closed my eyes and I turned a circle and didn't fall. Wow. And I threw my head back and I didn't fall backwards, which was my big problem. And, and I could still smell and I could still taste and I could move. And my wife gets up as I'm turning a circle. <laughs> she goes, why are you doing circles? And I said, look, and I closed my eyes and I turned a circle and she goes, yeah. I said, I turned the battery off. And she goes, you did what? And I told her the whole story about how everything happened. And that's when we started going to the neurologist and talking about getting the thing taken out and every, everything else. It's just been a cool ride. And if you actually have enough in you to live life to the fullest, we don't know what we're capable of till we go out and do it. And one of the big things I talk about in my speech is we don't know what dream we're going to fall in love with on our way to what we thought was our dream. We may find something else. And so the journey we thought, we need to put that in the book. The, my book person loved it. The editors sent it back and they're like, this is unbelievable. What a great story. And still there's a part of me in there going, Oh, the trolls are going to come after me. You were an alcoholic. You did drugs. You did all this. And I never took pain pills out of order. I took them. I just added alcohol to them. And I thought, this is going to suck. Everybody's going to be negative. Everybody has been amazing and receptive and open. And even my friends have read it and they're like, even my kids, we had no idea what y'all were going through. We're like, we tried to keep all the pain away from you guys. And they're like, you need to tell us stuff. I'm like, all right. But it's very personal and it's your own journey. And when you're walking through it and it's happening to you and it's turning out the way it is, you don't want to tell anybody because you don't want it to not work. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm getting well, I'm getting well. Oh, I'm sick again. Then God goes, you're healed. And so there's a feather on the front cover of the book. And that feather is in there because of the faith chapter. And if you want to know the rest of the story, you got to read the book.
it is awesome the way it happened. When your kids came up to you and told you that to tell us more, at that time, were you protecting them in a way because you didn't want them to be worried at all? We're protecting them, but you're also having to look at someone who's been through 58 surgeries in 20 years and you have different kids in your house and then some grow up and they leave and you have other ones in your house and you can't live like you're not living. And so you cover a lot to look like you're well. And I did that kind of like my grandfather until I got to drinking too much and then I couldn't function. And the kids wanted to know what we had been through and they want to know what we're going to go through. But it was tedious telling them, oh, dad's having another surgery. Oh, dad's having another surgery. And they got to the point where it was just like second nature to them. Like, okay. And so they didn't really think about it. They didn't know everything that was going on in between. And so we filled in those lines and they were like, wow, you guys have been through a lot. And so that book means a lot to me because I'm, I'm hoping it helps a lot of people. Is there, looking back at your journey, is there anything that you wish would have changed? Or are you happy that the path that was taken and you were able to grow from that? I think the path that I've taken has made me who I am. If I'd have made different decisions, I'd be a different person. And I am extremely happy with my life. I'm ex happily with where I am. I am happy being healthy and I'm happy being married to the most loving wife on the planet because it has just been an amazing trip and she has had to put up with so much that now she no longer does. And so that's been a huge blessing being able to be healthy and, and wanting to do things and not sitting down. When you have Parkinson's, here's the deal. When you have Parkinson's, Parkinson's makes you want to sit still. But when you have Parkinson's, what you should do is get up and move and not listen to your brain going, we just want to sit. We just want to sit. We're tired. We want to sit. Because when you sit, you give in. And when you give in, you give up. And that's when you start separating yourself from family and friends, because then it becomes a personal journey and it becomes your own health. And I don't want anybody to be a part of that because I don't want you to know what I'm going through because it's ugly and you guys won't like it. And, so why bother? And so you eat a lot of grief. And, but then when you get healthy, you can go back and go, you remember where I was? Look at me now. So extremely pleased with where I am. Did the relationship with your father get better or was it still the same as it was <laughs> going on? Because there's some oh times God. where, like as maybe you've gotten older, that it could heal. Um, my minister, my pastor in Dallas, who married my wife and I, we had lunch one day and he said, you don't have to cut your dad out. He goes, you just rearrange the order in which you listen to the things he says, make it less important. Don't cut him out of your life. Go to him and apologize for whatever it is you may have done and then tell him your side of it and see what happens. And eventually I did that. And he looked at me and goes, it was never that bad. And I thought, wow, you're telling me that my perception of my life is wrong. 
that's pretty rude. And but the last time I talked to him was at my grandmother Alice's funeral, and she's 98, passed away. And so we go to the funeral, and my dad is there, of course. He loves to be the center of attention. I was there when she passed away. No, you weren't. I go up to him, I put my hand on his back, and I said, I am so sorry. She was such a dear person. And I loved her so much. And he looked up at me and he goes, Don't ever effing talk to me again. Wow. And I said, You're in church. <laughs> you got it. And I didn't. And then he passed away less than a year later. Wow. And I did not go to the funeral. And part of my family thinks I'm a jerk, but I'm not going to go celebrate the life of someone who tortured me for 18 years. That's not happening. It's a personal decision. It's one I made and people might think it's wrong and people might stand up and go, you're right. You don't need to celebrate somebody like that. It was a horrible human being. Everybody knew it. I'd done speeches for people who went to school with them and their companies. And they said, even in elementary school, he was horrible. And he did things that would make you think, he ended up like a serial murderer, man. He's killing cats and chickens and everything else. But he wanted to fight all the time. And that's why we had to move so much in the military because he kept getting in trouble and we kept having to move. And so when he told me not to talk to him again, fine, you're going to miss your grandkids growing up. And then nine months later, he has a heart attack, goes into a coma and passes away. So what does the future look like for you personally and professionally? What do you hope to accomplish in the next couple of years? Well, it's pretty hard for a public speaker to go out in public and talk right now. That is true. So we're learning to do things virtually and I'm starting to enjoy it. It's easy because I could be in my underwear. You could be in yours. Nobody knows it. We don't care. And, but you're getting to converse with people. And I think shutting people off from the world and it's happened worldwide. We're losing our humanity a little bit and our compassion for other people. I've noticed a lot of anger and hatred and division and chaos and people who want to create chaos either on the far left or the far right. They're doing a good job of it. And the voices that need to be heard are being drowned out. And so what does the future look like? I'm not sure right now. And I told people back in March, we're not going to know about this disease until 10 years later. And people look back and go, that's what happened. It was manufactured. They did this. They did that. And this is what it did. And that's why it affected certain people. We're not going to know. So quit listening to the news every day going, oh, this happened. Oh, but we have a breakthrough. Because we're not being told the truth. We don't know what's going on used to be illegal to wear a mask into a bank and now it's illegal if you don't have one on. That's ridiculous. So personal life, keep working out, keep being married, uh, keep doing my hobbies, hunting and fishing, lifting weights, playing golf. And when I get to speak, enjoy it because it's a pleasure to be able to converse with people and share with them stories which they can either resonate with or they go, that is not a decision I want to make like that. So I'm going to go the other way use a lot of humor in my speeches and so it's a lot of fun i'm looking back i'm looking forward to going back on the road and i knew this was going to happen i did a conference call with these people earlier this week i was supposed to go to denver in two weeks and do a speech and today 
because if things have gone up in Colorado, we're doing it virtually. So it'll be a virtual event and I'm ready to get back out in public. I've done two public things this year. Everything else has been virtual. One was in Alabama and I expected this. 50% of the people wanted to hug me and shake hands and get their new book and have me autograph it for all their kids. And the other 50% wanted books and wanted me to talk, but they didn't want me touching them. And so it's like 50% like this sucks. It's ridiculous. And the other 50% are scared out of their mind. That was in Alabama. That was for the superintendents of Alabama and all the superintendents from across the state. So that's a big polling area. Then I go to West Texas and I do a school. And I think West Texas oil, nobody cares. This disease is not a big thing. And people are scared out of their minds because they don't know what the truth is. And so it's still about 50-50. 50% wanted to hug me, take pictures, sign books. And the other 50% wanted to wave at me and go, okay. It's just, it's strange. So I don't know what the future is going to look like. I hope it gets back to a good normal. I'm not going to go normal because we complained about normal anyway. Now we don't have normal anymore. And you're like, I wish I had normal back. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to the new normal to see what it looks like. Then I can make a plan and I can attack it. For someone that's listening to this interview, based on your journey, what tips or advice would you give someone to overcome challenges, accomplish their goals, and rise to their challenge? Huh. Don't ever give up. If you're failing at something, you may suck at it, but it may lead you into something else. But also, if you're failing at something, it may just be that you're not ready yet to make that jump and you need a new plan, you need a new direction. So why not open another door and see where it goes? And it may take you to someplace better. My deal is I've fallen down a lot. I was never supposed to pitch again. Came back throwing harder than I ever had with control, with pitches I never had the first time. You're just, you got Parkinson's, you're just gonna get worse. That's just how it is. I got well from that. Nobody does that. That's impossible. Man, I'm living a life that shows you that nothing is impossible. And there are a lot of great people out there. And if you want to be successful, you have to surround yourself with the very best people who are as smart or smarter than you to put on your team and surround you and make you live up to expectation. When you have people around you who are telling you you can't do it and it can't be done, you're not smart enough, those people need to go away. And I've got a lot of examples of those people in my book. And, you know, one of them was my high school counselor. You better play baseball. You're too dumb to go to college. Honors fraternity. And I don't know what you're trying to do, but I was smart. You just told me I was dumb. Football coach, you should play football, not baseball. You'll never, ever make it in baseball. It can't be done. You're a football player. Make it in baseball. Not when I wanted to, but when I was ready to. Just overcoming. We have to overcome a lot. Life is hard. You just can't give up, throw your hands up and go, I'm done. Because you know what? Sun's going to come up again tomorrow. You got a new day to attack something new. Make a dream, make a plan, and put that dream into action and see what happens. 
I love all those advices. Those those messages I live in my life today, never give up and always reach for the stars. Jim, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about Absolutely. the challenge. It's very inspirational and we're excited to see what the future has for you. I appreciate it, man. And good luck to you. Keep interviewing people because you know what? One of the reasons we wrote the book, and I left this off and I'm sorry. We wrote the book because the most asked question wasn't about the book, wasn't about Dennis. What are you doing now? And then now became so many different things. And we had the mortgage crisis and then we had the Parkinson's and we had the surgeries and we had, you're going to get sicker and you're still speaking. And now we're back to this and, and I'm healthy. We can never give up. And so the book was written because when I would talk to people at every speech for 20 years, I heard the most amazing stories that people don't hear because they're not fortunate enough to be where I was at that time and have somebody like Disney come and go, we want to put your movie on film, but everybody's got their own story and it makes them who they are. I totally agree. Everyone has their path that they're taking their story that we don't know and their version of how they're rising to the challenge. There's no book that just says, this is how it's going to go. We all take the way that our course is taking us and we're all yeah. going to to that end goal and accomplish all of our challenges. Absolutely, man. Overcome. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.